It's an ancient accusation against the people of God that we serve God only for the gifts and pleasures and rewards and handouts that he gives us for doing it. Satan made that accusation against Job, as you remember, where he accused Job in the heavenly realms against God. He is the accuser of the brothers. And he said, have you not put a hedge around him and everything he possesses? But if you reach out your hand and strike his possessions and take away from him everything that you've given him, he will curse you to your face. And then in part two, he said, well, if you extend your hand now to his body and if you strike him with illness and disease, he will most certainly curse you to your face. And we know how the uh, book of Job unfolded and how difficult it was for Job to maintain his integrity and his righteousness. It was very difficult. But for us, we are facing the same kind of accusation. As we come to the topic of Christian contentment, we're coming to the question, can we be filled with joy and peace in Christ no matter what happens in our lives? Is Christ crucified and resurrected enough for you to have abiding joy in any and every circumstance? And the Apostle Paul has taught us that he has learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And he doesn't speak idly. And even to that church in Philippi, they were well aware of his incredible example. You remember the story of how Paul and Silas and his team received the Macedonian call in a vision to come over to Greece and to preach the gospel, and how he began doing a fruitful ministry there. But in the course of time, he was pursued by a woman, a slave girl, who was demon-possessed and who earned a lot of money for her masters by fortune-telling. And uh, they, this slave girl walked behind Paul and Silas and called out in a loud, demonic voice, these men are telling you the way to be right with God, something like that. And Paul let it go for a day or so, but just out of personal irritation, he drove the demon out. It's one of the more remarkable exorcisms in the Bible. He'd had it up to here, and he turned and drove the demon out. But the problem was that now this girl could no longer earn money for her masters. They cared nothing for her. They cared nothing for her soul. They just cared about the money they were making, and so they hauled Paul and Silas before the authorities, and they were stripped and beaten publicly without a trial and thrown into the Philippian jail. And what happened after that is one of the greatest displays of Christian contentment there has ever been in church history. Paul and Silas thrown into the Philippian jail. They were put in the inner cell, and their feet were fastened in stocks. Their backs were bleeding. They had had nothing to eat, nothing to drink, no medical treatment. Their prospects were dim. Wouldn't have been strange for the Roman authorities just pull them out and execute them the next day and be done with it. So they might very well be ready to die. Uh, the stench must have been overpowering. Certainly no facilities within that Philippian jail. So almost every horrible smell you can imagine. I imagine them in complete darkness. So they're not looking at anything beautiful. They're hearing the sounds of groans and the sounds probably of cursing and complaining from the other prisoners. And about midnight, Paul and Silas gave the greatest display of Christian contentment any Christian has ever done. They just began to sing praise songs to Jesus. And all the other prisoners were listening to them. And I've often thought about Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. And I think saying to myself, are your circumstances worse than theirs? Could you not give God glory and praise and sing him worship songs now in this circumstance the way Paul and Silas did? They have become, for me, the quintessential heroes, the pinnacle of sanctification. If I can get to that level in the Christian life where everything of sensory pleasure is stripped from me and I am from the heart praising God because my sins are forgiven because death is just a doorway into eternal joy because I have God as my adoptive heavenly father could I not praise God in the midst of any and every circumstance and I've often used it my kids have to put up with this kind of thing 
is your circumstance worse than Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail? I say to them frequently. No, Dad, it's not. <laughs> well, then, you know, that kind of thing. It's kind of heavy-handed fathering at that point. But it's still, it's there. And Paul and Silas gave a display of supernatural contentment that was incredibly compelling. And I mean not just at the human level. It seemed to have been compelling to God. That God filled them with the Spirit and then desired to put on display his delight in what they were doing. And so he sent the most extraordinary surgical strike earthquake there's ever been in human history. Destroying the walls and the gates and the chains falling off and no one's hurt. And none of the prisoners escaped. And the Philippian jailer comes and assuming all of his prisoners have escaped out of the open doors, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Has there ever been a soul dangling over the precipice of hell more more, with more terrifying acuity than that. He was ready to die, but his soul was not ready to die. He was about to go to hell. And out of the dark came Paul's voice saving him. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. Calling for lights. The jailer went in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, what must I do to be saved? And they gave that simple, timeless answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And so for me, that is the gospel. That's the gospel for you. We're on a retreat here. I would assume that all of you have made that profession of faith in Christ. But if not, this is the time to know that your sins are forgiven, to know that you can have that forgiveness Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's the same gospel 20 centuries later. Now, for me, I've believed in the Lord Jesus. But can I make the confession that Paul makes here in Philippians chapter 4, that I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation? And that's something that's very much a work in progress for me. The Apostle Paul really gives the pinnacle of a kind of a journey of this kind of confession. Job said effectively, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said effectively, though he slay me, yet will I not disobey him. But Paul and Silas were saying, though he slay me, yet will I rejoice in him. I will show God the joy and pleasure that I have in him alone, even if he strips every earthly blessing away from me. So what we're going to talk about today is Christian contentment. And I said it in context uh, last night, and so I walked through it. I'm going to do that a little bit more. So the message is going to be in two parts. I'm, we're going to sit at the feet of, of an expert in Christian contentment, the Apostle Paul, and learn from him. We're going to drink in what he teaches us here in Philippians 4. And then I'm going to shift over to a Puritan pastor named Jeremiah Burroughs, who wrote a book in 1642. He preached a series of sermons, then he died, and, and the sermons were assembled in a book in 1648 called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I've been drinking in some of the wisdom of that, and I want to share some of that with you. Um, and God willing, uh, a book that I've written on Christian contentment will be published early next year. And when there's a great danger in publishing a book like that, I am not in any way claiming that I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Just that it's something worth studying. And I want to commend that to you uh, right now. So Paul, in the midst of Philippians 4, comes to the issue of the money that they had sent to him. Paul is in, in, in prison. And they had sent him, money, sent him money by Epaphroditus. And in verse 10, he rejoiced greatly that they had renewed their concern for, uh, for him. And so he's delighted in the money. And as we talked about last night, look at verse 11 and 12. He said, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. So Paul says he's learned the secret of Christian contentment. Now that word secret is a very important word for our study. What it means is that Christian contentment is possible but not guaranteed. It's possible, but it's not guaranteed for us. And when Paul says that it's a secret that he has learned... What I believe that we can learn from that is that Christian contentment is not part of the original equipment of conversion. It's not given to us at conversion, the secret of Christian contentment. So at conversion, we receive so many blessings. 
We receive full forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, and future. We receive the gift of imputed righteousness from Jesus Christ, whereby God sees us as righteous as Jesus in him. We receive the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit to be with us forever, to guide us into all truth. We receive adoption from the Heavenly Father. We become his sons and daughters by grace. We receive the promise of eternal life that no power on earth or under the earth, no power in the heavens can take us away from Christ and abiding assurance and so many other blessings. But we do not receive this gift of Christian contentment at conversion. It's a secret to be learned. It has to be learned by experience. You have to live through it, uh, experiences. You can't learn it out of a book. Remember I said there are two patterns of discipleship, book learning and life learning. Now the book learning sets up the life learning in Christianity. So right now you're getting some book learning on Christian contentment. So you're aware, you're going to learn what it is, you're going to learn the doctrinal basis of it and all that, but then you have to go out and live it. And the only way that you can learn to be content in any and every situation is to live through any and every situation. You have to actually live through these things. And probably you have to be discontent in them and be convicted by the Holy Spirit of how wrong your discontent was and repent and ask the Lord to work in you and, and teach you to be content in that situation or in that one. That's how it goes. And Paul says that I have learned the secret. I think it's possible, we'll just start with the word possible, to go through a very fruitful, productive Christian life and be generally discontent in this world. I think that many Christians live most of their days and most of their times, especially in affliction, in discontent. So it is possible to go to heaven that way. But why do that? Why be miserable and sad and discontent in this world when you could be content in any and every situation? I'm just saying it is possible to be discontent and then go to heaven. But Paul says it's a secret to be learned and that he has learned it. So he gives us encouragement. It's not a matter of perfection, like we're going to be perfect in this world. I do not claim that perfection can be gained in this world, but you can be content in any and every situation. So it's a secret to be learned, and he has learned it. Now, let's talk about the word that Paul uses for contentment. This is something that I did not know until just a recent time ago. The word content is a very strange word here. It literally means self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. Now, anyone who's read any Christian theology or Christian uh, writings in the New Testament would be surprised by that word. As a matter of fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that God put him through an extreme trial in the province of Asia, so great that he thought he was about to die, and he went through this pressure cooker to teach him one lesson, that he should no longer rely on himself, but on God who raises the dead. We know that Jesus in John 15 said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So we would think self-sufficiency would be exactly the wrong thing that we would be learning. And yet that's the word he, he learns. Self, or he uses here, self-sufficiency. I've learned to be self-sufficient. Well, I think the more I've meditated on this word, Paul is relating it to God's self-sufficiency. So this is pretty deep theology, but let me share it with you. God is a self-sufficient being. Uh, there's a, a, a complex theological term for this. It's the aseity of God, from selfness of God. That's what the word literally means. It has to do with God's self-existence. God exists from himself. He owes his existence and his completeness as God to nothing outside himself. God's act of creation was not constrained by anything outside him nor was the inner impulse to create owing to deficiency or defect. God does not need us or anything outside himself to be God or to be happy. Creation does not complete God. That's from an article by John Piper on the aseity of God. The Westminster Confession of Faith has it this way, God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient. 
not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. That's God. Paul says it this way in Acts 17.25, that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Wayne Grudem speaks of the independence of God. The independence of God. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. And yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. So God stands independent from the creature. Independent from creation. It makes sense because there was a time that God existed and there was no creation. And he was just fine. So he doesn't need anything from the creation. So there is an aspect then of this aseity of God that is at the root, I think, of Paul's secret of Christian contentment. The way I would understand it this way is that God needs nothing but God in order to exist and thrive as a being. Nothing in creation needs to come in from the outside of God to sustain his existence. God is self-sufficient. But Paul's saying, I am like God in this regard. I need nothing other than God for my continued existence as well. God is God-sufficient, and so am I. So I would shift it slightly from self-sufficient to God-sufficient. All I need is God. Just like we were just singing a moment ago, all I have is Christ, all I need is Christ. I think that's what Paul's saying here. Now you might say, all right, let's test this. Wait a minute now. God is the creator, we're the creature. So there's an infinite difference between us, and there is. But if you understand uh, contentment here as God's sufficiency, that God is enough for me, let's test it and see. Doesn't Paul have basic physical necessities, created things that need to come from the outside in for him to continue to exist? Oh, what would they be? Well, let's start with his biological needs. What does he need? All right, now some of you, are thinking right away about food. Because you do think about food. A lot. All right? Others, not so much. But some of you just think about food. But food is not actually the primary physical thing that needs to come in his body. The first thing that needs to come from the outside in is air. Then water. Then food. So medical science tells us the average person needs air, oxygen, and can only live for three minutes without getting it. So if you cut off a person's air for more than three minutes, average person, they will die. And they can live on average three to five days without water. And uh, the lifespan without food is three to four weeks, so that puts it all in perspective for you, all right? What would happen if those three substances didn't come into Paul's body? What if his air supply were cut off for more than three minutes? Or his water supply were cut off for more than five days? Or his food supply cut off for more than four weeks? Well, that's easy. He would die. But yes, we already covered that back in chapter one, remember? For me to live as Christ and to die? Gain. So I don't actually need air or water or food. I actually don't need to keep living physically. For me, it'd be far better to depart and be with Christ. Better by far. Oh, all right, well, that's how you're going to talk. Yes, that's exactly how I'm going to talk. Well, then, does Paul need the esteem of his co-workers? No. Does he need to be praised for what he does? No. Does he need a, a comfortable bed to sleep in? No. Keep on going down the list. Does he need to be thanked when he does something nice for someone? No. Does he need to see answers to his prayers in order to keep praying? No. You're like, wow, I mean, you're starting to talk about a pretty radical independence here. Absolutely, and that's frankly the secret of Christian contentment. You start to realize, I don't need anything but Christ. If I have Christ, or if I have God, then I have everything. C.S. Lewis put it this way, He who has God and all the world has no more than he who has God alone. He who has God and all the world has no more than he who has God alone. So what does that make all the world? Nothing. And isn't that about what it says in Isaiah 40? All the nations are like dust on the scales and like a drop from the bucket compared to God, the infinite 
majesty of God. So you're like, dust on the scales? The nations are dust on the scales? Some time ago, I was in the process of learning, a, or, or sorry, losing a significant amount of weight. And I stepped on the scale, and it gave me a bad answer. So I stomped on it, and I broke it. And then I had to confess my sin to my wife. We had to buy a new scale, because I shot the messenger. <laughs> but imagine if I was in the process of losing weight, and I was convinced that there was too much dust on the scale. And I got down on my hands and knees and dusted the scale and then got back on it. Now that's better. That's ridiculous. It makes no impact at all. Or imagine I'm a farmer and I'm carrying a bucket of water across the, uh, the yard and a single drop slops out and I stop and I do everything I can to recover that drop of water. What are you, a maniac? What's wrong with you? It's a drop of water from the bucket. That's what the nations are to Isaiah. Compared to God, they're nothing. He who has God in all the world has no more than he who has God alone. And that's what he's talking about here. His core contentment comes from God. Now, like God, created things can make him happy. God delights in the praise of his people. He doesn't need it, but he delights in it. And so we can delight in a sunny day in Newfoundland, can't we? We can be happy about it. Don't take it for granted. I'm learning you all don't take it for granted. So you can be happy, and it can make you happy. When someone notices something you do and thanks you, it can make you happy. It can bring you joy. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying you don't need it. And it would be better for you if you realized that and didn't live like you needed it. That's all. That's the essence of Christian contentment. Now, the Apostle Paul lists some of his circumstances to be well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. He lists these things. Sometimes it's more of a challenge to be Christian content when well-fed or rich, or surrounded by comfortable things. It's actually, in some ways, a greater challenge. Can you actually still be independent of those things? But Paul had been through it all. He'd been through each of these. Now, what was the secret of Christian contentment for him? Well, he gives it right in the, in the text. It's right there in the text. It's like, it is? So you're looking, wait a minute, where is the secret? I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, well-fed or hungry. It's right there in verse 13. What is it? I can do everything through him who strengthens me. That's the secret. Well, some of the translations are the, or the, uh, the King James, I think, through Christ who strengthens me. Um, some of the manuscripts don't have the word Christ. doesn't matter. We know that that's what Paul meant. That Christ gave him strength to be content. So what does that teach me? It, teach me it's, it teaches me that it's a work of strength to be content in any and every situation. Conversely, it's a display of spiritual weakness to be discontent. You're showing yourself to be a weak man, a weak woman, if you murmur and complain in circumstances. You've sh you're showing your weakness spiritually. So what you need then is you need to tap into the vibrant strength of Christ in this circumstance to continue to be content, to continue to be joyful and peaceful and patient in the midst of this circumstance takes strength. To take your stand and have the, the onslaught, the waves coming at you of circumstances that are adverse and say, I'm not moving. I'm going to keep trusting God. I'm going to keep praising him. Though he slays me, yet will I praise him and love him. That takes strength. And what an incredible display of strength it is. And that's the very thing Paul wants. Thank you for the money, but let me teach you something. Because he said in chapter 1, you're going through the same struggle you saw that I had and now here I still have. You're going through it too. So, oh, Philippians, I want you to learn this secret. I want you to display abiding Christian contentment in any and every circumstance so you can be more effective witnesses. Do you realize how important this is, how vital for the world? You're going to go through basically the same physical trials that the non-Christians are. But you should go through them better than they do. You're going to get the same diagnosis. You're going to be getting the same chemo, the same radiation, or the same surgeries, or your loved ones are, your spouses, your, your kids are going to go through those things. God doesn't seem to make any distinctions. He puts his, his, his children through the same things. But what happens is, you know, Jesus said this very plainly. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, he puts it up on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. What is the stand but Christian suffering? He's going he's gonna to put you 
in a, in a cancer treatment system with doctors and other patients. And the other patients, most of them are going to be non-Christians. They have the same diagnosis as you. And you know how it says you should always be prepared to give a reason to anyone who asks you a reason for what? The hope that you have. And remember what I said. Hope is a feeling or a sense that the future is bright. Even though you have cancer. I have cancer and my future is bright. Boy, do you have some treatment you don't know about? Oh, I have a treatment you seem to know nothing about. Let me tell you about the treatment I have. Someday I'm going to be 100% cancer free. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be comprehensively disease free. Really? Tell me about that. It's called faith in Christ. Oh, that. Yes, that. That is my hope. But here's the key. You have to be evidently, obviously hopeful in that circumstance. You have to be like Paul and Silas. You have to do your version of singing in the Philippian jail. You have to speak words of hope. You have to sing. You have to be happy and joyful in Christ. Or no one will ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And so that's the key. This Christian contentment is essential to being a Christian witness in this pain-filled, curse-filled world that we're living in. God is going to put you on a pedestal. You say, I'd rather he didn't. But in eternity, you're going to wish that he had. You say, I don't want an easy, comfortable, pleasure-filled life. God put me on a pedestal. Get me ready. You know, they say you should never pray for patience. Oh, God, give me patience. Have you ever heard that? Don't pray. Look what's going to happen. You should pray for patience. Oh, you should never pray for humility. God's going to humble you. Well, pray for humility. You need humbling. So do I. So how is it we grow to be very patient people by going through afflictions and trials? How is it that you learn to be humble by being humbled, by having God putting you in humbling situations? And you should desire that. And so the same thing with this contentment. Would you, oh Lord, would you work this in me? Would you give me strength to be content? And what's so beautiful is you get the opportunity. What are they, what is, what's that thing where, where you, you don't become an expert until you do something, what, 10,000 times, something like that? Who came up with that thing? It, it, to become an expert, go through it 10,000 times, all right? Well, guess what? You're going to get the chance. When do you learn Christian contentment? Any and every situation. Any chance that you're going to be in any and every situation today? How many of you are going to be in any and every situation today? It's like, what are you asking? Yeah, you're going to be in some situation today. All right? Be filled with contentment. Be joyful in every circumstance God chooses for you today. That's what we're talking about here. So it takes ongoing strength in Christ, and he'll give you the strength. So what I'm saying is you have to fight for your contentment. You have to take your stand in Christ and say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Strengthen my contentment here. People take that verse out of context. Athletes use it before they go out on the athletic field. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can make this free throw through Christ who strengthens me. I can make this goal kick through Christ who strengthens me. Well, that's fine. But in context, it's I can be content if Christ will strengthen me. That's what it's talking about. So, oh God, give me strength to be content in any and every situation. That's what he's talking. You've got to fight for it. You've got to take a stand for it. All right, now, that's the Paul part. With the minutes I have left, I want to give you Jeremiah Burroughs. And Jeremiah Burroughs was a Puritan. He wrote in Puritan language, and so it's a little bit hard to understand. That's why I wrote my book, to kind of update the language and give some of my own illustrations and all that. But let me talk to you about this rare jewel of Christian contentment. And he calls it a rare jewel because of its incredible value and worth. How valuable is Christian contentment? Well, let me share with you uh, how, uh, an illustration why I think it's incredibly valuable. Can you imagine that you won an all-expense-paid two-week trip anywhere in the world? You can stay at any hotel you want. You can eat any food you want. You can do anything you want. You can, you know, you can be on a private yacht, or you can you can go to the to the. Mediterranean, the Caribbean, you can, you can go to some beautiful mountains or whatever, anywhere you want, two weeks. Eat any food, any, you know, they'll, they'll provide new clothes for you that are suitable for each occasion. It's like, wow, this is an incredible lottery that I've won. But here's the stipulation. For the entire two weeks, you have to be miserable. It's part of the deal. You have to be discontent the entire time. Would you do it? It's like, what in the world? Of course not. Who would do that? It's like, well, I might give it a shot. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> 
Why would you want to be miserable? And you can actually see this in the lifestyles of the rich and famous. They have everything anybody could want, and they're utterly miserable. They get divorces, they get addicted to drugs, they're utterly miserable. Because they have everything they could want in this world, and they are not content with it. Because they don't know God, and they're empty inside. So you know that all of those like extreme five-star circumstances, if you don't have contentment, are worthless. They're meaningless, conversely. Would you like to have the kind of supernatural, heavenly foretaste of joy and glory that Paul and Silas experienced and be able to sing in an extremely painful circumstances? Would you be willing to do that? I think most of you Christians say, you know, I actually would. Because I think you look back on it. Wouldn't you think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... You know, if you, if you knew any of them and they're on their deathbed, say, of all the things that happened to you in your life, what was the greatest thing? So that's easy. It was the time that we were in the furnace. And we weren't burned up. And the Lord was with us. And we were supernaturally delivered. That was the greatest time of my life. And I wouldn't be surprised if Paul or Silas said maybe one of the top three or four, because Paul had many of those circumstances. But yeah, it was one of the best times of my life. It was horrible, but God was with us. And gave us such peace and joy. So you can see the value. It's a very, very valuable thing. The rare jewel of Christian contentment. All right, so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to give you Jeremiah Burroughs' definition. This is super geeky. All right, this is like Puritan speak. It's a very dense definition. So you have to get the book. It's available on Amazon. And then my book, which comes out next, next year, goes through it carefully as I'm about to do with you. And so if it just washes over, you fine. If you're a note taker, you want to write down this definition. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in any and every condition. I'll say it again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. It's probably online, the definition. You can just get it. But now I'm going to break it apart. The first thing I'm going to say to you is that it's a frame of spirit. That's an archaic way of speaking. Like one of the hymns says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Uh, sometimes in, our, in English we use the expression, a frame of mind. It has to do with a disposition or an attitude might be. It's an attitude. It's a heart attitude. Okay? So it's a frame of spirit. It's a heart attitude. All right? A disposition of the mind. It's a mindset. It's a demeanor. And then he gives us four adjectives to describe it. Sweet, inward, quiet, gracious. Let's take them one at a time. It's a sweet demeanor or sweet attitude. I love the word sweet. One way to understand it would be to take the opposite. It has to do with a flavor, a taste, something that's sweet to the taste. So you would go the opposite. What are, what's the opposite of something that tastes sweet? There are two words that come to mind, bitter and sour. Okay? So what is a bitter person? Have you ever met a bitter person? I would say a bitter person is someone who is generally reflecting on the past, generally sins that were committed against them, and they can't forgive. And they're hard about it. And they have a very negative disposition about life. People are bitter that way. Sometimes they're bitter about church. They had a bad experience in church 15 years ago and never been back. I talked to people, you know, in the U.S. about that, you know. I was witnessing to one guy and he said, oh, yeah, some guy was really rude to me at church and I haven't been back. Haven't been back since. I mean, not to that church or any church. No, no, no church. I didn't go to any church. I'm like, oh. I said, can I ask you a question? Have you ever gotten food poisoning? Yeah, I did. Did you give up eating? <laughs> I've had food poisoning. I didn't quit eating. <laughs> it was a very bad experience, but I kept eating. All right? So he's like, huh, good point. <laughs> I don't know if he went to church the next Sunday. I hope so. Doesn't have to go to our church. Go to some church. Good food is being served everywhere. But uh, bitter people, they look back on something that happened, something with their father or their mother, something that happened in the past, and they're very hard, they're bitter. Bitter to God, maybe they lost a loved one. Maybe a sweet grandmother that always loved them that suddenly died of a heart attack, and they never, never could forgive God. You know, these kind of people talk like this, like God did, did something wrong to them. And so they're very bitter toward God, bitter people. All right, this is the opposite of that. 
These people are just not bitter. They're actually very sweet. They look back at the past with sweetness of the goodness of God and all that God has done for them and all the many, many blessings God's given them. There's a sweetness to Christian contentment. Or then the word sour. I think of that, bitterness generally looks back. Sourness kind of looks ahead. You know, gloomy disposition. Growing up, I used to, used to uh, read, um, you know, Winnie the Pooh. And you remember Eeyore? Remember Eeyore? Eeyore? it's like oh my goodness you have to work with people like that oh that I would not be a person like that and oh it's going to be terrible the worst case scenario you know that kind of thing and it's like I don't want to be a sour person gloomy disposition nothing good is happening we should be buoyant with hope expecting that today is going to be worth living expecting that the rest of our lives are going to be worth living, expecting that it's going to be even infinitely better when we die. Fill with hope. All right, so that's the word sweet. Then it says inward, sweet inward. Frame of spirit. So here's the thing. I am not going to enroll you in acting school. We're going to act happy. You know? So look in the mirror, get your face right. That's a little weird. All right, fix it. All right, that's better. We're going to get the facial expression right. We're going to get the mannerisms of contentment down. We're going to learn method acting. Okay? Wrong. That's not contentment. It's an inward heart state. It's genuine. It's a genuine heart state. It's an inward thing. It's not outward. It's not acting. And frankly, Burroughs said if it were just an acting thing, it wouldn't take much learning. But it's an inward thing. Thirdly, it's a quiet frame of spirit. There's a quietness. Do you remember how there was that terrible storm on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus extended his hands out and said to the winds and the waves, peace be still, and they were quiet under his hand. So the churning waves and the churning wind represents our spirits when we're discontent. We're churning and roiling and charging God with wrongdoing and complaining and you know all of this stuff. And that's what Satan is like. That's what the wicked are like in Isaiah 57, like the churning sea which cannot rest. There is no peace, says my God for the wicked. Isaiah 57, 20, 21. And Satan's like that. He's angry because he knows his time is short and he's discontent and he's roaming through the world and so are the demons. And they're looking for a place of rest and they never find it. They're restless, roiling, churning rebels. But a, a Christian who's content is quiet under God. There's a quietness to them. They have a quiet spirit. So it's a sweet, inward, quiet, and then finally gracious frame of spirit. What this means in Puritan language is that it's something that can only be worked by sovereign grace. This is something God has to work in you. It's really a miracle. What Paul and Silas did in the Philippian jail was actually more miraculous than the earthquake that followed that human beings could actually genuinely be thankful and sing praise songs in that circumstance with no sensory pleasure coming in and no prospects in this world. They might be executed the next morning. Still, they're praising God. That's supernatural grace. It's a gracious frame of spirit. Does that make sense? So it's something that's worked by grace. All right, so that's the front side. It's a frame of spirit. It's been described by four adjectives. Now, what does it do? It freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. All right, so I'm going to go to the end and go to the, the expression disposal. It's an odd word. Uh, I would say decisions about your life. God makes decisions about you. Does he have that right? Oh, he does. He is the, the creator and we're the creatures. He makes decisions about you. Like to what degree? Everything. He decides when you'll be born and when you'll die. All the days ordained for you are written in God's book before one of them came to be. He's already made a decision about that, and nothing will change it. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? You can't add 18 inches to your lifespan. And so that's been decreed. And is it decreed who you'll marry? It is. Is it decreed who, how many children you'll have? Yes. Is it decreed how long they will live? Yes. Everything has been decreed. So essential to Christian contentment is the doctrine of providence, that God sovereignly overrules the events of human life. God's, we're not deists here that God just stays out of it 
and he doesn't do anything. No, even the dice are cast into the lap and their every decision comes from God. God is sovereignly overruling. Even the sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Everything has been decreed. It's been wisely chosen by God the King. So God has thought about you and made decisions about you. And you just need to accept that. But how does Burroughs describe it? God's wise and fatherly disposals. All right? God is very wise about what he's decided about your life. He is very wise. And not only are his disposals wise, they are fatherly. And what a great day to talk about God's fatherly disposals. God is the ultimate father. This is Father's Day. We should celebrate fathers, but God is our heavenly father, and he has made fatherly decisions about you. Now, Burroughs could have said kingly, and it would have been just as true. God is a king. But here's the thing about God's kingly disposals. When you think of a king making decisions, he does what's best for the kingdom, right? Whatever's best for the kingdom. Does that include sending young men off to die? Absolutely. If need be, he'll send them. If an invading army has come threatening the city, everybody, all the, all the women and children are inside the wall fortress, and there's that army, he'll send out a bunch of young men, and he knows some of them are never coming back. And so he will do what's best for the kingdom. That's what kings do. Good kings do that. And he'll ride out himself and risk his own life. And he will do that. But there's still something a bit austere about that, something a bit scary We should embrace the kingship of God, but he uses the word fatherly. And what it means is the father, where the king does what's best for the kingdom, the father does what's best for his children. What's beautiful in Christianity is the two are one and the same. What's best for the kingdom is best for the children. It's the same thing. And so God has made sweet fatherly decisions about you. He loves you. Everything he does in your life is good. Even if it involves suffering, it's good. And so there are wise fatherly disposals. So, what does contentment do? Freely submits to those disposals. Freely submits to what God decides in your life. What does submit mean? It means you yield to it. You bow down before it. You don't rise up and fight. And when you murmur and complain, that's rebellion, actually. It's easy to prove from the Old Testament. When Israel was out in the desert and they're murmuring against God, remember this? Remember how they refused to enter the promised land. They turned back and would not enter the promised land. And God said, fine, you're going to wander in the desert and you're all going to die and your children are going instead. Now turn back and I'm going to feed you every day with manna. You remember what happened? They're eating manna, 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 manna. And then after a while they got sick of manna. And so they started to what? Not that you've ever complained about the food. We've all complained. Too hot, too cold, too spicy, too much, too little, too this, too that, too the other. Same thing with the weather, same thing with our job circumstances, same thing with the family. We complain, we complain, complain. Murmuring is counted rebellion by God. It's rebellious to murmur against him. And so what did he do to the Israelites when they complained against the manna? He sent them poisonous desert snakes. And Israelites died because they complained. And so they went to Moses and said, we're sorry for complaining about the manna. Would you please take the snakes away? God said effectively, no, I will not take the snakes away, but I'll give you a remedy. And he set up the bronze serpent. You know that story. But my point here is murmuring equals rebellion to God. So when God chooses something for you and you fight against it by rebelling or by murmuring, you're rebelling against God's wise and fatherly disposal. So Christian contentment doesn't do that. Christian contentment freely submits to it, and not only that, delights in it. Now, submits means I'm not going to fight it. I trust God the King, God my Father. I'm going to trust him. But I'm going to go beyond that. I actually delight in what he has chosen for me. Now, you may say, how can I do that? The same way Jesus did. Didn't Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising shame? You don't need to delight in the cross but you delight in what the cross achieves. And so he wasn't excited to get crucified and drink the cup of wrath, but he was delighted in the multitude from every nation that it would save. 
And so looking beyond the suffering, you can see the glory in it all. So that includes your cancer diagnosis or your child's cancer diagnosis. You can look beyond it to see what good God could bring from this. Because you're going to a world where there's no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. You're going to get there. And if the, the journey is going to be very difficult, God is putting you on a pedestal of suffering so you can win some lost people that also need to come with you. And so that's what you can see the glory in that. You can see the value of that. Let me give you a couple of examples and then I'll finish. Probably this is one of the sweetest examples of Christian contentment I've ever read. It has to do with uh, Jonathan Edwards and uh, his wife, Sarah. Jonathan Edwards took a smallpox inoculation, which they did back then, but they didn't have it exactly right. And he died from it. His throat swelled up. He couldn't take any liquid. He couldn't take any food. And he died. His wife, Sarah, one of the godliest women in church history, heard about it. And she, she wrote a letter to their daughter, Esther. And this is what she wrote. Listen, listen to these words. Incredible. What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. That's it right there. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left to us. We are all given to God. And there I am and there I love to be. Your ever affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. All right, so let me just unpack this. She just found out her godly, loving husband is dead. He, she's never going to see him again in this world. This is the letter that she wrote as soon as she got the news to their daughter. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. It's not an accident. God did this. My God lives and he has my heart, and that's where I want to stay. God is enough for me. Now, what does she mean by, oh, that we may kiss the rod? The rod is a rod of chastisement. That's the way the Puritans talked a lot. And basically, God brings adverse circumstances to train us in our sin. She looked on this as something like that. Anything adverse that comes our way is a training in reference to sin. When you get to heaven, you'll be sinless. You won't need it anymore. There'll be no pain, no afflictions, no rods. But here in this world, we need training. And so she, she says, this is a rod for me. I feel like I'm getting a beating. But I want to kiss it. What does it mean to kiss the rod? It's like, I'm looking to the father who's disciplining me, and I love that he's disciplining me. Because he's treating me like a child. Not like he doesn't know me. He's actually dealing with me in my sin. And he's helping me to trust him. And if you're like, well, she's such a godly woman. Job was godly too. And there was sin inside him. And so she adds the second part. May we kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. What does that mean? There's some things I could say right now, but I'm not going to say them. Didn't Job do that at the end? He said, I'm going to lay my hand on my mouth. I'm not going to say any more. Because we have still indwelling sin inside us, and we could say some things in a circumstance like that. But ultimately, God was good in giving me my husband and that we had him so long, and he was such an incredible man. That was the goodness of God. And it was good for him to take him away. Now, here's the thing. Do you think Jonathan would want to have made the return trip at that point? Imagine Sarah got down and he said, oh, God, please send him back to us. And he comes back and is like, why did you do that? <laughs> Didn't you read Philippians 1? For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. It's better by far and you want me to come back? How selfish. I'm happy here. Here's the thing. Sarah and Esther. Esther never received the letter. She died before she got it. She was a godly woman too. Sarah died within the year. All three of them were in heaven. It was a short little trial for them, and then they were gone. Light and momentary sufferings. And the last example is George Mueller. George Mueller, his wife died after a prolonged illness. He had given many prayers, one of the greatest prayer warriors in history. George Mueller, who in the 19th century took care of almost 
over 10,000 orphans, his orphanages, uh, specific answers, over 50,000 answers to prayer. But God didn't answer this one, at least not the way he wanted, and so she died. He preached her funeral. Imagine that, getting up to preach your beloved wife's funeral. And uh, he chose, as his text, Psalm 119, verse 68, you are good and do good. God is good and does good. And his, his sermon, his funeral message had three points. Number one, God is good and did good to bring Mary into my life to begin with. Number two, God is good and did good to allow Mary to live with me as long as he did. And number three, God is good and did good to take Mary home to heaven when and how he chose to. That was the three parts of his message. So, for me, those are two heroes of Christian contentment in extreme circumstances, the death of a godly loved one. Most of the trials we experience will be less than that. So, let me apply this to you. Ask God to show you the many ways you complain. It's more than you think it is. And if you're not sure, if you actually, I'm, I'm a pretty happy person, I don't complain much, just ask a loved one, like your spouse would be good. Honey, do you ever hear me complain? Oh, from time to time. <laughs> And say, you know, I want to grow. I don't want to murmur against God anymore. Make this a matter of prayer. So God, would you teach me to be content? Train me in the little moments of irritation so I can be ready for the bigger moments of affliction. Help me not to complain about traffic problems. Help me not to complain when my car needs repair. Help me not to complain when I don't get noticed for some good thing I did. Just teach me to rest under God's wise and fatherly hand in any and every situation. And then secondly, say, God, put me on a pedestal so I can be a witness to some lost people. That's a scary prayer. But you know, honestly, God's going to do it anyway. But if you pray, you'll be ready for it. It's not like God's like, well, now that you ask it, now I'm going to really hit you. It's not that. It's just that you'll be more ready for whatever God chooses to do in your life. Put me on a pedestal. I want to shine in a dark place. Help me to rejoice even in the midst of afflictions. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to look at Christian contentment. There's far more that we could say about it. But Lord, we all acknowledge that we are very consistently discontent people. And we need to ask your forgiveness that we've not trusted your wise and fatherly decisions about our lives. We've not trusted what you've decided to do with the circumstance of our lives the way we should. Father, we repent here and now and we ask that you'd forgive us. And make us trust you. Make us, give us that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in everything you decide to do in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.